Welcome to the Shaky Experience. My name is James Richard Lane. Today, we'll be speaking volume with Coleman Zerkowski. Coleman is a classically trained composer and musician originally from Maryland, but now based in New York. He started his studies in 2008 and has since released several of pieces of amazing compositions and music. He has been selected in a resident program in Syros, Greece in 2015. In 2017, he went on an internet national tour with his album Zero, which was later released on Danger Bird Records in LA in 2018. Zerkowski has lectured at the California Institute of the Arts and DePaul University. Coleman's compositions have been featured in over 10 different film festivals, including one being nominated for Best Screenplay and Best Cinematography at Queen's Wolf Film Festival. His work has also been featured in a Toyota commercial, Squirt Soda commercial, and a film produced by LeBron James. He's about to release his next piece of work, Music for No One, out in June 2022. I can't wait for it. Oh my God. This guy has done some pretty awesome stuff and I'm very proud to call him my friend. Without further ado, Coleman, welcome to the show. What's up, James? Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure, man. So how are you doing in 2022? I like to ask my guests that just after the past two years, it's been kind of rough out there and I want to know how's it going first and foremost. Well, things are good. I think I'm feeling excited for things related to music this summer. Um, But luckily this year, it seems like things are more open, available now, uh, especially with live music and travel. So I'm gradually, slowly organizing more and more shows, especially to promote music for no one. Yeah. And Music for No One is a very interesting album because it has a unique concept of being released into a book, which is something that I'm really not familiar about. Can you talk to me a little bit about this upcoming release and what people can expect from it? Yeah. So the piece, I composed it and created and developed it I I would say very reactionary to the limitations on live music during the pandemic, particularly like during the heart of lockdown when uh, musicians couldn't meet up to to play music or perform music. And we also couldn't gather to see live music. I just realized even with how much people tried to overcome that limitation, like virtual performances, radio performances, Nothing really quite replaced going to particularly a live acoustic concert or just like a, I think there's something, and I think we all know now, especially after the pandemic, like there's something there when we all get together and just watch musicians do things. Uh, And I, I really, really miss this. And like I said, even though people tried to overcome that challenge, me included, I had a performance on Dub Lab Radio, but it just didn't quite fill the void. And so I started to think about, well, I wanted to create, okay, I guess, yeah. So that's how I was feeling. And at the same time, I was also, so I was working for a fitness app, which is called Aptive. And uh, currently I also do audio editing for the app Calm. And I was doing, especially during the pandemic, a lot of people were passing the time indoors. So things like digital audio content were just really popular at the time. So I was producing a lot of content for Aptive 
And so a lot of my days would just be spent like on Zoom meetings and listening to things. And I think a lot of people can also uh, sympathize with this exhaustion from screen time and also just taking in things digitally. And so at that time, I would want to listen to music, but the day would end and I just like didn't want to be anywhere near my phone or my computer. So I started reading lots of books and like, I think the first book I read that it got really got me really back into reading was Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, but I started reading a bunch of books and just consuming a lot of books. And I was thinking, wow, I wish I wish we could experience a concert like one experiences a book, like how you read a story and you imagine this entire uh, novel. I wish we could experience a concert that way and not like a description of a concert, but just it could be a channel to imagine all of the sounds and everything going on. So my way of doing that was first I composed the music. And then I created illustrations and also text descriptions that people could follow along uh, if they listen to the music or not. But hopefully the graphics will give them an idea of what the experience of the music feels like or sounds like. That way they could imagine that on their own. That way, if they did want to listen to the album, but they didn't want to listen to anything, they could read the book. Does that make sense? Sort of. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I mean, I'm on the edge of my seat here because it sounds really interesting and captivating, but I guess what do the illustrations include and does it allow for the reader of the book, I guess, or the the viewer even of the book to depict their own imagination or do you kind of provide them with context of what you were experiencing while creating this book and audio album. Right. So, sorry, I'm trying to figure out the best way to explain it. And also like I've, people have asked about it a handful of times now. And every time I go to explain, I still haven't quite figured out the right way to explain it <laughs> other than being like, just look at it. <laughs> but what I did first was I took an 88 note keyboard from a piano and then I assigned colors to each note on the piano. And basically in the middle register, it's roughly the colors of a rainbow. And then as you go lower on the piano, the colors get darker. And as you go higher on the piano, the colors get lighter. That was somewhat based on Newton has a uh, color wheel that's linked up with the musical notes. It's like loosely based on that, but also a bit more intuitively. I chose the colors. Uh, but anyway, I assigned the pitches to the piano. And then every time that note appears that color appears. That way it's consistent throughout the book. And then before each piece, I just explain the compositional design of the piece. Like, okay, the first, the first piece is just five instruments playing one note. And it just goes through all the combinations of those five instruments playing that one note. Um, and then I describe the instruments like it's a wind quintet. So that's flute, clarinet, oboe, French horn, and bassoon. So if you know what those sound like, you can imagine. But then I also say, okay, if you don't know what these sound like, you can imagine any sound. I kind of leave it up to you to interpret also. As long as you imagine one pitch and assign that pitch to that color and keep it consistent. Wow. I guess I'm curious, what is the imagery in the book? Yeah, so it's it's pretty simple shapes. Like in this piece that I just described with the wind quintet, so those five instruments, since they're all playing the same thing, 
And in this case, they're playing a C and on the keyboard C is the color pink. So you see five pink lines and I just assigned lines to each instrument. But so that you understand, like basically the key element of the piece is that those five instruments, even though they're playing the same note, they have five different timbres. So the sound of the instrument is different. So each of those instruments has a line, but I change the line pattern for each instrument. So every time it comes in, like the clarinet is a dot, dot, dot. Every time the flute comes in, it's a solid line. That way, you know, something's different, but it's the same pitch. Um, and then you see the lines changing in and out across the page and you read the page just like you would read a book. And there's also tempo markings at the bottom of the page that say it's like, OK, this is 65 BPM. So you can follow the markers at the bottom of the page just slightly faster than the seconds of a clock. So I always try to give a reference that way you have something to go off of. Yeah. Is there a set of instructions within the album or the book? Yeah. The, in the first two pages, it explains how to how to approach the book and how many pages is the book it's 210 wow i tried to keep it like i i found that i liked books that were around 200 pages like that was like after 200 i start getting bored (laughs) so but i'm a light reader but i i tried to keep it short so i wanted the book to be easy to carry around and not nothing heavy Are you familiar with any other artists, past or present, that has done something like this previously? Well, so there are, there is a history of graphic notation, which some people have asked, oh, this is a graphic notation piece. But it's a bit different from that in the sense that the graphics are not there for someone to perform. It's not, it's not meant to be interpreted with an instrument. It's more just to give a reference to imagine music from. For a reader and also to make it as accessible as possible to understand for people who do or don't read music. I guess I should also mention that the album that I released before this, which was before the pandemic, which I had planned that big tour for, was called Instrumental. And that album, I worked together with a great designer named Kevin McCoy, and we released that album as a book as well. But it was mostly based around the music notation because I had this idea that people find music notation beautiful like I find it beautiful and I know others do out there even if they don't know how to read it but then as I started to share the book and also sell the book at shows people would say this is beautiful but I don't know how to read sheet music so this isn't for me and I realized that sheet music can also be a bit inaccessible in the way that people feel intimidated by it as well. So I wanted people to be able to, quote unquote, read the music without feeling feeling like they can't read it. Like I made it as simple as I could, you know? Just so I have an understanding of the synopsis, maybe. So when listening to the album, the book is sort of a guide of the way that the music would be written in text form, I guess, like the horns and so forth, but it's in different colors and therefore it creates an abstract image perhaps in the reader's mind exactly. of the sound. Exactly. Wow. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. I, I also want to say uh, really quick, I, I just said that I tried to make it as simple as I could, but I didn't mean that like in a, in a demeaning way. I just tried to make it as clear as I could. That way people from different backgrounds of music and understanding of music could approach it and feel comfortable to approach it. And what would you say is 
your level of excitement for tour? Like, how do you feel that the audience and the people coming out to your shows will interpret this? What do you have in mind? What are your expectations when you start performing this piece? Yeah, so I'm super excited. I'm almost like so excited. I'm a bit overwhelmed because I've been just patiently waiting for the time to... Music for me is an avenue for me to travel and make friends in different places because what's great about concerts is you can have an established location where people can come to and meet and hang out. And we just haven't had this for so long. I mean, of course, it's been coming back, but incorporating travel as well. And I know I've been holding off on that for a while. So it feels just really good to be able to go to different places, see people I haven't seen in a while. And yeah, I'm just incredibly excited. That's so good. I love it. It really is something different. It really will grab someone's attention. And I think that may be one of my favorite things about this project that you're currently working on because it's different and it conveys a different kind of message and it showcases sort of unique level of creativity. And I think people are always seeking the next thing. And to me, this this could be the next way to sort of take a break from staring at your screen on your phone or yeah. your computer. So in a lot of ways, you're giving an outlet to people to maybe take some time to reflect, meditate, focus on other things that matter, and allow people to kind of have their own sense of creativity to be explored within their deeper self, if that makes sense. Definitely. Well, and I also, what I enjoyed about when I got into reading books, like I said, I watched, I mean, I listened to, excuse me, I read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and then you get to watch the movie after. So I also hope that you could read the book and then listen to the recordings after and say, oh, that's what I imagined, or oh, that's not what I imagined, but that's kind of interesting. That is really interesting. I love this, Coleman. I am a a true fan. (laughs) I will say, like, I don't know if it's, it's... I don't believe that it's anything. Um, I don't know if I'm like completely changing the face of music or anything like that, because at the end of the day, it could it could seem like more of just a different kind of release or like um, not a gimmick, but just it's not like it's changing the music. All I wanted to do was just create. I had a theater friend who said it's it's radical accessibility. And I like that term. It's just like I want it to be so extremely accessible that it's just anybody could approach it as well as just um yeah i think the main thing was to be able to take in music and also unplug because when i was reading these books it was such a relief to just look at paper (laughs) and also use my imagination rather than just be blasted with uh visual and audio content all the time yeah absolutely and it kind of reminds me of um a story I'll tell you later after the interview of something I've been working on with my music, but with QR codes and telling stories through QR codes, actually. But that's for another time. Well, I did want to mention, I, I think you, I mentioned, I messaged you this outside of the interview, but the book includes a QR code with a link to the recording. So the album is still available online, uh, but the book gives you the QR code to, to access that recording. 
Fascinating. Yeah. Wow. And is that available primarily through Bandcamp or where could that recording be found? When scanning So you have your choice. It's on Spotify, Bandcamp, Apple Music. It's on YouTube. It's wherever I imagined people might look for music. It's there. <laughs> That's awesome. And will the imagery of the book be featured anywhere besides the book? Other than on Bandcamp, you'll be able to purchase the book through Bandcamp, but otherwise the imagery is just in the book. Okay. I wasn't sure if there was like a slideshow on YouTube or something. I thought about doing that, like maybe releasing it as a PDF, but then I realized that might defeat the purpose of the book, which is exactly <laughs> to yeah, get that's away right. from computers. <laughs> How many copies are there printed out for this book? Right now there's 70, but I'm kind of, I used to do everything in like limited run of 100 or something like that, but I'm gonna just keep going until because uh, i've been really enjoying how excited people get about the book so if, yeah. if people still want the book i'm gonna keep producing the book and will it be available on sale at bookstores or record stores anywhere i don't think that i think i'm just going to be selling it at my shows as well as through Bandcamp or messaging me directly cool okay uh, nice yeah, yeah. yeah the real hustle yeah exactly well yeah. i also Another part of the book is I wanted to design something that I could easily send out to people. And I realized that there's something really special about just giving somebody something of yours and making that connection, you know? Man, that's hitting home with me so much. Yeah. Uh, uh, Yeah. Another side story. But anyway, the name is also really interesting too, right? Like music for no one. I mean, That gives me the impression that it's really obscure, esoteric, perhaps, (laughs) and it doesn't present a very welcoming to. (laughs) It's radically accessible, but it's meant for no one. And it's music that's meant for not listening. (laughs) Yes. Isn't that great? When I saw that, I thought, of course, classic Coleman. (laughs) But I like how you contradict it because it, again, captivates and stimulates the person to discover why is it for no one, but it's also radically accessible for everyone at the same time. Music for no one is music for everyone, you know? Where did that name come from? So it actually came from, there was a, um, at CalArts, there's usually like the, the composition students set up a lot of concerts independently. And there were these friends of mine, Justin and Ed, that were organizing concerts on their, on the, at CalArts. And they had planned this concert that conflicted with like a bunch of other people's concerts. And they wanted me to write a piece for the concert. But they said, listen, you can write whatever you want. There's going to be probably like no one there. So I decided to write a piece for no one. And the, 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 piece, <laughs> the piece was just anybody who's there has to leave the, the space and just imagine music happening in the space, just completely in their imagination, for, do it for a couple of minutes and then go back into the space. And I think they said one person showed up and all three of them just went outside, imagined a piece of music and then went and sat back down. It was just a silly idea. But then I started thinking about that, especially during the pandemic when like when we were so limited to just like the confines of our own houses or neighborhood walks, felt like my imagination was also running very high just my internal thinking 
And so with the reading of these books, I started thinking more about this piece for no one of like, how could it be a more structured way of writing music for somebody to imagine? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. That totally checks out. What will the live performances of this look like? Yeah. So the live performances for the promotion of music for no one are going to be piano recitals that I'm organizing. And this is also, again, related to my experience in the pandemic, which was I found it really hard to actually create music in the beginning of the pandemic. And I think a lot of artists can will sympathize with this idea of it just felt like a creative block. And I think that came from a lot of like the lack of uh, physical, social stimulation we had limited. But anyway, I started playing a lot of piano, just like I studied piano in college and a lot of my uh, life. And I had taken a break from it for a while, but then got really back into it during the pandemic and was just playing a lot of piano music, like like the classics, you know, like Bach, Beethoven and all that. And initially, I wanted to organize these concerts to sort of share these pieces that I had been playing because I thought, well, this might be interesting to share some music from no music from music for no one, but then also these piano pieces that I've been playing because I thought my friends might think that's cool to see me play some Bach. But then as I started to reach out to some of my friends in Europe, I was like, yeah, I'm thinking of organizing these concerts where I'm playing Bach, but then I'm playing some of my music. And they're like, "Uh, that's cool. But I don't know if like people in Europe are going to want to hear a bunch of music from old European people. (laughs) Yeah, sure. And uh, they said it'll sound kind of like you're doing covers or something like that. And then so I thought, okay, I'll make these concerts more about an exhibition of music of mine, like some music from Zero, some music from another album instrumental that I mentioned, some music from Music for No One, and but all still based around the piano. So um, each each piece of the concert, I'll like explain what's going on in the composition, kind of like I do in the book. Like I say, oh, it involves these instruments. This is what's going on in the piece. That way you know what to listen for and know how to approach each piece. And then I play the piece and then I explain again and then play the next piece. But like I said, it'll most of the concerts will be exhibitions of my work. And I'm trying to make all the concerts a little different. That way it's not just like a repeat and each concert feels unique. Because I also, shortly after the pandemic, the first live concert that I did go to was a, um, it was at the, sorry, I'm trying to remember the name, Barge Music. Do you know about Barge Music? No. It's in New York. It's a classical venue where they perform classical music on a barge. So you sit on this barge and you're just like floating there while they perform the music. And it's wow, it's really amazing. But they were doing the Bach cello suites. And that was like the first concert that I went to after restrictions were relaxed a little bit. And it was like, you know, maybe there's 10 people there and then also a guy playing cello. And I just realized how much I missed those more intimate concerts where it's just some people there, one person sharing some music. And that's more what I wanted to achieve. Not really like big stadium sellouts, but more intimate piano recitals. Okay, gotcha. And will people be sitting down for these performances? Yes. And will the artwork be featured somewhere during these live performances? 
No, but I'm going to be bringing the books along with me. I'm like going to be like a traveling salesman, you know. I'm going to be playing <laughs> music. I'm going to say this is what it sounds like. If you like it, the books are in the back. Um, and I'm sure I'll be doing a little show and tell with the books, but I'll, I'll have them with me. It's kind of funny because the way that you're sort of illustrating this picture, at least the way that I'm kind of understanding it, is when you're performing these music compositions and then having a book to go along with it, it almost reminds me of religion in a way. Like when someone is performing a piece at a church and people are reading from the Bible or another type of you know book to go along with the piece. And the correlation there, it, it just sort of fascinates me a little bit because also when I was listening to the album Music for No One, one of the things that I noticed from it is track seven did have sort of more of like a heavenly, I don't even know, like maybe even gospel sort of vibe to it. Is there religious influence within this release? Do you feel like? Well, it is interesting you say that because instrumental was very much inspired by Gregorian chant. And so the performances of that piece were actually primarily in churches. This piece, I would say, is not necessarily supposed to be like directly reflecting religiousness um but i do think what you're what you're seeing is that in religion or in services like that people reading along with the music is to also make the music accessible that way you can actively be a part of the music even if you don't know how to play music or don't know how to sing you can look at the words and look at the melody that's written there and i think i was trying to achieve something similar in that way of that accessibility and seven what James is talking about is a seven voice vocal piece that I wrote, which hands down, it's the best composition I've written to this date. But I think where that might feel like it uh, has a spiritual sound is the fact that it's very inspired from my love for Renaissance as well as medieval vocal music. And I've been trying for so long to create my version of a Renaissance madrigal. And back in the day in the Renaissance, they would write these madrigals, which particularly were secular pieces outside of the church. But a lot of those composers had gigs working in the church. So it was very influenced because the church would be funding a lot of this music. So I think that's maybe where the sound calls this idea of religion and the way that it is inspired by Renaissance music, uh, but it's not particularly meant to be religious. But if you if you feel spiritual from it, then uh, that's just a bonus. <laughs> sure enough. And where did the influence come from to even get in this line of interest of music? I know you mentioned your time in university, but was there any experiences that you had younger with perhaps your family or your upbringing that brought you to this stage in your life? Actually, it's interesting you asked this because I was just thinking about this yesterday, like why I make the music I do, because I was thinking about questions that could be asked in this interview. And I thought, well, that would be a good question. So why I make this music? I know from our last interview, James, I've mentioned that I've not only create other kinds of music, but I've also been a part of other like bands and things like that. Uh, I was in like a metal band and a punk band in Chicago. And all, like my first beginning of music was studying piano as a kid. And then I continued that through college. And of course, I still play now. And then from there, I played in lots of bands, 
did lots of other music affiliated things. And then even now, my job, I write music outside of Calm. I also write music for commercials and film and things like that. And actually, I have a track that's going to be featured in the fall on Sesame Street. We can talk about that later. But I just wrote music for Sesame Street. So I make all kinds of music, but, and during the pandemic, I was thinking about this a lot too, of like, okay, well, why do I care so much about this more experimental music that I make? And at the end of the day, it's because I think I just realized after doing so many different types of music, it's acoustic music that I feel the most passionate about. And having that removed during the pandemic made me realize how important that is to me. I mean, we can listen to something on the computer all day long, but sitting and watching professional music, uh, excuse me, professional musicians create a, a harmonic sound is just incredible to me. Like, I, I think that is like so wild and amazing. And for me, my experimental music is an approach that I found to making acoustic music that still feels fresh and new, but also feels individual and unique to myself. So I'd say that explains it. I love that. Great yeah. answer. Really solid stuff. That's funny you mentioned that as well, because I feel one thing that gets me every time is seeing Vinyl Williams perform because he puts a lot of visual components within his work. He really hones his craft when it comes to performing, recording music, but also putting sort of a something else with it. And a lot of ways I can see some type of comparison to what you do within your sound. And you knew vinyl through school, right? Right. Yeah. So I, you know, it kind of sounds like the school that you're going to is really putting out a lot of good work out there. And I assume that you had a really good experience there too. Well, and CalArts was great, but I think the best part of CalArts was all the people that I met there at the time and and the faculty as well. And I still, like I was just thinking about that the other day, even the people that I met who didn't go to CalArts, but that I met through CalArts people. And I think what that school does is it somehow encourages an environment for you to find a unique voice with your sound or your music or your art. And so everybody that seemed to come out of there that was studying with me all just does different and really unique things that I feel very like proud to say that I know these people. I now, like vinyl, we more just like pass each other in the hallway. Like I know him and have mutual friends, but uh, we're not too close, but sure. Yeah. Makes enough. great stuff though. Fair enough. Yeah. So Coleman, let's get into your accolades because you have quite the list here. And I think this is a great segue for listeners to see if they may recognize you and or your work from somewhere. And I think the best thing we can do right now is kick it off with that Sesame Street segue that you mentioned earlier. What is the story behind that? How did you get involved with Sesame Street? Are we the first to know? Can we even say this on air? What can you tell us about it? Well, I guess, yeah, we'll find out if, uh, if, well, the episode will be in season 53. So it'll be in the fall. That came from just being in New York and 
doing the commercial music hustle out here, you meet a lot of people that uh, hopefully keep you in mind when opportunities come up. And this was something where in my time in the beginning of New York, I really established myself as the person that will write music well for cheap. (laughs) And that's uh, come to bite me in the butt sometimes, but it's also worked out in other times. And this was one of those cases where they unfortunately had a bit of a tight budget for a section of music. And I was the guy that the guy thought of immediately like, oh, Coleman's good with tight budgets. (laughs) So they called me, but to me, it's it's fun, and if I'm getting paid something, that makes it even better. And uh, they were actually Sesame Street. The clients were really easy to work with. They they loved the first draft I made, so it was all good. And will that be featured in an episode or a commercial? Where can we expect it? Yeah, the episode. It's I'm not sure which episode it is, but like I said, it's season 53. And all you need to know to remember it is F is for food. That's the name of the track, and uh, it goes through different letters of the alphabet and I had F. So if if you're watching Sesame Street by chance and you see a segment about F is for food, you're listening to a number one hit single by Coleman's or <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. And do you have a month or a day when we can expect this to air? I think September, but I'm not quite sure. Gotcha. So yeah. you also worked on a movie that LeBron James produced. What is up with that, man? LeBron James is a star. Like, how did this come to be? So that was another situation where uh, the producer was on a tight budget and the editor knew me and the editor reached out to me and knew I'd be down. But also, again, it's it's a great opportunity and it was really great to work with them. In fact, that video is like has the most views of anything that I've ever written. What James is referring to is the uninterrupted videos, as many people might know them as. And I wrote all the music for the Josh Gordon documentary and the J.J. Reddick documentary. Uh, wow. But they were a lot of fun to work with. And I'd also like to plug right here. I also wrote music to a feature film, which is unrelated to these LeBron James films, but it's uh, now available. And it's actually like a, a really, it's a great film. And I feel excited because it's my first feature film. Do you mind if we segue into this, James? Absolutely, please. Uh, so during the pandemic, I also worked on a full length feature film. Like I said, it was my first full length feature film and it's with director uh, Mackenzie Morrow and it's called Exposure 36. And just a couple of months ago, it got picked up for distribution and it's now available on Amazon. Amazon, I don't think it's available on Netflix, although I think you can rent it, but basically every major streaming platform, you can rent it and watch it. And it just feels pretty cool to have my music on a feature film that you can stream like that. That's so thriller. Is there any people, actors, producers, etc. That we may recognize from the film? I think it's all of our debut, but hopefully, you know, in the next couple of years, you'll be saying you recognize all of us, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Great outlook. I do love that. So speaking of which, that's also another great segue to the, I think it was about like 10 or so film festivals that your music, your compositions had been featured in a film or so for several of these film festivals. Had you gone to the film festivals and what has these experiences been like for you? 
In some cases, I did go to the film festivals. I have a bit of a complicated relationship with film festivals, as I think some filmmakers do. I find them interesting that they do, you know, they are wonderful accolades and they can be great opportunities for filmmakers to have their work discovered. Um, but I've also found that they can take advantage of a lot of filmmakers' want to be discovered. You know, a lot of those film festivals cost money to be in and, and I know they cost money to put on. As well, but I have been in a handful of film festivals, and in some cases, nothing much has come out of them. But it is still fun to go and see the film on a big screen, which feels yeah. really good. And through these accolades that we've been talking about, have you noticed anyone discovering your compositions and or music through these pieces of work? Have people reached out to you previously from LeBron James, from these film festivals, from Danger Bird Records, etc.? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. The So the film festivals, somewhat a little bit. I mean, what's great about that is they've provided me an opportunity to meet people. Like, like kind of like concerts, you know, a film festival you can go to and meet people. Of course, the residency that I did was also part of the Sears Film Festival, which was another great way to meet people, especially internationally. The LeBron James videos, unfortunately, my name's not mentioned on there. So most people don't know that I did those. They'll be like, oh, I watched those, but I didn't realize that was your music. <laughs> <laughs> Where I've had the most people reach out to me, though, is my music was featured in a meditation that was on that fitness app, Aptive. Okay. And they, they did a partnership with Audible and they released these meditations through Audible. And it's pretty interesting. I, I've had a lot of fans find my music and find me through Audible. And one of these was a friend of mine who he's an artist named Brune. And his name is Bruno. He's based in Rio in Brazil. And he discovered my music through listening to one of the meditations on Audible. And he loved my music so much, he sampled it. He's a rapper. He sampled it on a track that he made. And then he had to get my permission to use the sample. So he reached out to me. And then from that experience, because I liked the song, we became really close friends. And in fact, right now he's helped me organize a concert in Rio, which is going to be happening in July. And um, I just, I really value those people that reach out and make themselves known that can, we can, you know, create friends friendships through music. I guess that's what I'm saying is I really sure. value the friendships. I mean, you and I have become friends through music, you know, yeah, really absolutely. Wonderful. that actually brings me to my next question, Coleman. So how is this tour being funded or this current project being funded? Are you crowdfunding or where mm. is sort of the finances coming from? If you don't yeah. mind me asking. The finance is coming from uh, this job that I'm doing that I'm always, <laughs> I'm doing outside of the interview. No, everything is, is self-funded. I have been saving up for this because it's something that's important to me and I'm going to go until I financially can't float it anymore. <laughs> but uh, luckily, you know, well, I guess I'll just say these, these, these things are still costing money. I was just going to say that luckily opportunities are still coming my way, which I feel very fortunate for. But these concerts, I just don't want them to be, I, I found that when I'm relying on, I, before I was applying for a lot of grants and things like that, and I found that 
by applying to the grants, I would have to compromise certain things about the performances or my music to appease the grant. And I realized that my independence is more valuable to me than that. So I'm using my own money to fund this tour. Dude, good for you. I mean, that is, that's a real statement. That is yeah. a quote right there. And, I mean, hopefully I make some money back, but I really don't, I, that's not really the goal. It's not to make money. It's more just to share my music as yeah. much as I can. You know, That's incredible. I love that, Coleman. Yeah. That's very inspiring. I am dying to know now. If you had to give advice for anyone that's interested in a hustle like this, there could be a couple of examples, right? There could be someone first starting off, a graduate from school. There could be someone moving to a big city for the first time, like New York. There could be someone going on tour for the first time. There could be someone putting together their first album. Just maybe a piece of advice right there. What, What would you say for the hustle, the general synopsis of the hustle? Where does the drive come from? Where does the accelerator start? I like this question. So one thing I want to say is like, I feel like a lot of my drive comes from being from Maryland and being from a town outside of Baltimore. I think just growing up in Maryland, there's there's always the, the weight of living in the same state that like DIY 80s hardcore, I'm talking about like DC hardcore came from and knowing about that music as you're growing up. And it was just really inspiring to me with my music in terms of just doing things DIY and independently. I guess I just wanted to say that that's where my personal drive comes from uh, or like that's inspired me. But when it comes to creating music, I want to say that my advice would be make the music that you want to hear and produce the things that you want to see in the world. Maybe it's something that like you don't see yet that you would love to have. Music for No One, I created that because I was like, oh, I wish there was a book that that allowed you to imagine a concert. I don't know what that book looks like. I can't find it. I'll make it. Because if if I want that, then maybe somebody else out there also wants that. And I really felt like I started to see more positive results in my life when I started to focus on, well, what is it that I want to hear? What is it that I want to see? What is it that I want to do? And usually when you put stuff out like that, it attracts people that also like and want those things. And when it attracts those people, those friendships tend to be a lot stronger because it's people that are on the same wavelength. Now, I I guess I did want to say about the commercial music hustle is that it's a fine line of not being taken advantage but also doing everything you can to be like making the connections you need to. And I know people say like always like network, 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 but I don't think it's quite about that. But I do think one key element is is location. I lived in LA previously before I lived in New York. And when I lived in LA, I was really hustling as hard as I could out there, but it really felt like I was like spinning the wheels. And then when I moved to New York, it seemed like the connections started happening so naturally. Yeah. So one, I think location is actually important, especially when people say, um, you know, with the pandemic, you can work remotely, you can be anywhere. But like, I would still say I get work 
because I'm based in New York, even though like I could be on my computer anywhere. And then the other thing too, is just like being out there. Like you really have no idea what might happen when you just meet somebody. And I really can't thank all of the people in my life enough for how much they're helping me with the tour, how much they're helping me organize shows, how much they're helping to recommend me to this person and that person. And some of these shows, I don't know if anybody's going to even show up to these shows. Uh, But I do know that if I go over to whatever country I might be going to or city I might be going to, I know that I'm going to end up meeting somebody that could be a beneficial connection in some way, if not just a friend. And I think a lot can come from just being out there. Love it, man. You are slaying it right now. So appreciate it. And I'm sure so many others are appreciating this wisdom as well. How many places will you be visiting on tour? How many countries? How many cities? What was the list? Let me ask. I just wrote it down. Let's see. Okay. Right now, are we including the KC, uh, KCR radio promotion? <laughs> sure. Yes. So far, there's things planned for Athens, Greece, uh, Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. In August, I'm going to be going to Chicago, Cleveland, and then there'll be a show in New York, which will be at the Old Stone House. That's August 14th. It's a Sunday. So anybody listening, uh, mark your calendars. But also maybe if you want to go reach out to me and talk to me because it might have to be invite based only because I can only have 50 people there. In September, I'm hoping to go to LA, maybe Montreal. October, a show in Minneapolis, maybe Mexico. November, Buenos Aires, and maybe London. So is there a listing online where people can find this? No, I'm trying to keep it a bit more word of mouth. Um, wow. <laughs> but <laughs> As the events get closer, the there'll be more like Facebook events and things like that. But if you are interested, like if you'd like to see a show near you or if you want to work together to organize something, find me on Instagram. My profile is public. Uh, you can hit me up or anything like that. And I will be posting like if something is happening in a certain city to know about. But I just things aren't definite until they get a bit closer. That's all. And just so everyone knows, the episode will be featured, The Shaky Experience. Coleman Zerkowski interview on Spotify and most streaming platforms. Coleman's social links and website will be featured in the show notes and the description of the episode after it airs on WKCR. So Coleman, we are running out of time here again, but this time we're going to have to wrap it up. I have just a couple more questions. Hopefully we can get through kind of on the more quicker side. Cool. Adaptability, moving from Maryland to LA, Chicago, New York, and everywhere else, you're kind of not from a major city area. How did that adaptability become so fluent to you, isn't fluent to you in general? And what has been those experiences moving to these bigger cities for you? Yeah, it's kind of funny. I always thought that like, I've I've moved to one big city before I can do it again. And it's always hard. (laughs) Like even in New York, where I thought I would know more people, I still didn't know a lot of people when I first moved here. And there's always that like, every city I've moved to, there's at least a year of of an adjustment period. But I have found that even though it's challenging in the beginning, every city I've moved to, I've created connections that don't seem to go away. And it's been the biggest help in terms of not only organizing things, but also just having friends in lots of these places that I like to go and see. So I just feel very grateful that I've 
had these experiences in all these cities. That way I have friends in these places. I kind of want to just highlight two other things here, if we can so quickly. Danger Bird Records, the fact that you released music with them is so freaking cool, in my opinion, because Danger Bird Records has released music with Fits in the Tantrum, Hot Hot Heat, Minus the Bear, Seawolf, and more. Was that a moment of excitement for you? Can you kind of describe those emotions really quickly, what that was like? For starters, I think that was also kind of uh, that experience could offer some wisdom, but that was, and that's also why I, I do things, I think, independently and just put things out there because I want to. But Zero was an album that I just wanted to tour it. It was important to me to share it. And I had no expectation. Actually, I think that goes back to the advice uh, that I wanted to say before, which is like to remove your expectation of what could happen. Like with this tour for Music for No One, I don't know what's going to happen and I'm not going to expect anything like I could totally spend all my money and be totally broke at the end but I at least I shared my music and I'll be happy zero the tour was the same way I was just sharing the music no expectations of anything happening and then danger bird saw the listing for the wolf which is a venue in LA and they checked out the album were into it and it's just I would have never expected anything like that that's so so cool and you know I really want to encourage anyone to reach out to Coleman about his experiences his story is I feel like there's so much more. This interview could go so much longer. Here I'm always go. happy to offer any advice for anybody that wants to reach out and ask questions too. What was residency like? Like if you could just maybe a couple of sentences, like two or three sentences of residency in Greece, what was that like? It was amazing. I love Greece. That's why it's the first stop on the tour. I like camp. I've been waiting all three years of the pandemic to go back um, or two and a half or whatever, but it, it was amazing being on a residency. And I feel like I'm, I would love to do another residency again even though i haven't been able to but the bond that you create with people when you're on a residency is just wonderful but it was on an island in the aegean sea it was fantastic <laughs> how do you pronounce the name of that island again so it's uh it's Syros, Syros, and the yeah. residency is called Syros sound meetings and i think they'll be picking up again soon and i encourage anybody that wants to be a part of it to check them out as well because it's run by Yanis and denai who are wonderful people and uh, it's a really wonderful residency. That's so, so cool, man. Yeah, that one really interests me a lot. What is one major difference performing internationally to the US? It's hard to describe, but there's an excitement about artists from America in other places, but also that comes with its own expectations of what American music is like. But I think what is really cool is in America, music is tends to be viewed as like this nice hobby that you do. Whereas particularly in Europe, it's valued much more as like an occupation. Like I am a musician. I've met people over there who told me they are a musician of the same, like of the same importance as like, I am a lawyer. And um, so when you go and produce music, it it seems like it has a bit more value, which, or it's a bit more openness rather than just like a nice to do, you know? That's awesome that people can fund or live their life on music. Pretty amazing as their occupation. I mean, I think a lot of people in America would love to do that. So <laughs> yeah. bring that love, here. I love performing in both places. I, I have to say it's, yeah. Two final speed round questions. Two final ones. Here we go. Final speed round. Rapid fire. If you could have any musician past or present cover a song of yours, which musician would it be and what song would it be? Chopin 
and I'd ra- I'd have him play my number one hit, which is three from zero. Okay. <laughs> All right. Who is the most underrated musician that everyone should look up right now? You can give a few. Man, Minnie Ripperton. Who is that? Come on, man. She does the song, <laughs> Loving You. It's easy because you're beautiful. <laughs> All right. Wow. Thank you. We're going to get a performance on air. How great is that? <laughs> Everyone, Music for No One is coming out June. What day, Coleman? June what? June 1st. Music for No One is coming out on June 1st. You heard the tour dates and it's word of mouth. So this is kind of an exclusive piece right here. So if you want to check out Coleman, you can find him in the show links. Coleman, what are, just really quickly, what's the name of your website? What is anything that you want to blurt out right now? You got it. It's easy. My website is colemanzerkowski.com. My Instagram is at colemanzerkowski. And I'm on Facebook too. (laughs) As Coleman (laughs) Zerkowski. Music for no one. I had the chance to listen to it and I will say I loved it. I thought it was really great. Four really stuck out to me. Six really stuck out to me. Seven really stuck out to me. And I want to say that six was by far my absolute favorite. It gave me old school minimalist hip hop beats, like kind of like the skateboarding, you know, sounds of the nineties, early two thousands, kind of just a really, really solid vibe. Thank you so much, Coleman, for coming on. I sincerely and deeply appreciate it. Your story is amazing. Your wisdom is incredible and i hope that people check you out and come out to see you on tour thank you james thanks for having me thanks for everybody for listening